Um, we've talked about this several times over the last few weeks, the idea that we think we're not as bad as Jonah. Uh, because at the end of the day, we are not people who don't want God to convert people in some sense, like Jonah does with the Ninevites. You know, we may have moments of anger and frustration with people and we want justice, but, but we don't look at people groups and think, don't save them. Uh, you know, we, if God were to uh, convert the North Koreans or, or massive uh, uh, groups of radical Islamic extremists, we wouldn't say that God shouldn't do that. I don't know of anyone that has withheld money from leading the way because uh, people in the Middle East are being converted. Uh, Muslims are being converted. Even extremists are being converted. You know, the story of the, um, the ISIS, a uh, high-ranking member of ISIS who was converted. I don't know anyone who said, no, no, not him. Uh, that would be strange. Very strange. So the question... Maybe something more searching about us and something more wonderful about God. And I just have a, a few points for us this morning. They're not on the screen, but um, just a few for us this morning. God's maddening mercy. God's maddening mercy. God's poignant plant and God's costly compassion. So chapter 3, verse 10, God has compassion on Nineveh. And chapter 4, verse 1, the very next verse, Jonah is angry. Obviously, Jonah is not very much like God. Very different person. Uh, what preacher wouldn't want to preach eight words and have 120,000 people converted? It's, it's, it's crazy, but not for Jonah. He doesn't want the uh, enemy city to escape. He wants them to receive justice because they have been a wicked city. And so what is his response now to the, the grace of God, the mercy of God? Jonah is angry. Now it's funny, normally the compassion of God is something that's praised in Scripture. People uh, are so grateful for it. Um, you know, as Seth was reading in Exodus in 33 and 34, you know, the Israelites have worshipped the golden calf. They have chosen not God. They have chosen something that's created by the hands of man. And God reveals that He is the God of compassion. And so He tells Moses, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. And throughout the Old Testament, this phrase about the Lord's grace and His compassion is repeated over and over again. Even here. But Jonah hates the mercy and compassion of God. In verse 2, he essentially says, This is what I did not want. I knew that you would do this, and I did not want it. These Ninevites, they are wicked. They are detestable. They are a stench to you. And then they come to you and say, We're sorry. We repent. And you get all mushy, and you get all merciful and kind, and they don't deserve it, Lord. And that makes me angry. And then in verse 3, he sings, uh, you know, the famous hymn that we often sing, Take my life, Lord. But he doesn't mean take and use it. He means take my life and end it. 
Okay, a few questions for us as we're trying to understand what's happening here. What's, what is Jonah all about? Did the Ninevites truly repent? That's a good question. According to Jesus, they did. Matthew chapter 12, Luke chapter 11, Jesus says they repented. It does not mean that they converted. It doesn't indicate that they put their trust in Yahweh. Uh, but they did change their direction, at least for a time. And because they changed their direction, uh, God changed his policy. Which raises another question. Did God relent? Right? What was God's will in this case? The answer is that he's not taken by surprise with what happened. He wasn't forced to cancel his plans. His plans were always to bless Nineveh. That's why he raised up Jonah. That's why he re-raised up Jonah. And when the Bible says God relents, it means that he has abandoned plan B, which he has threatened them with, so that he can stick with plan A, that he would bless them. And it looks to us that God is relenting. It's actually God using his, his own sovereign purposes to stay with his plans. Another question that would certainly come up with the way that this story ends. Was Jonah converted? Was Jonah converted himself? He's disobedient at the very beginning, and then he's obedient, and then he's praising, and then he's cursing, and he's angry. What do we make of Jonah? What, what, what kind of person is he? Remember, is he a good guy? Is he a bad guy? We want to put people in these categories. And like we said last week, he's just like all the people of God. He's like the people of God, saved and sinful, faithful, unfaithful, capable of great godliness and ungodliness. That's the reality for all the people of God. We are saved and secure people, but we are not perfect. And we are not consistent as we would like to be. And it's the same for pastors, and it's the same for missionaries. I remember going into the mission field, not as a missionary, but visiting um, a, a group in Morocco, and, and these missionaries, they were so territorial, and they were asking us all these questions like, why are you here, and what are you doing here? And I just thought, relax. You know, we're, we're all on the same page here. We all are looking for people who need to hear the good news of the gospel. But that's the reality, is that that's our human nature, Right? They've been working really hard in this area and then all of a sudden someone kind of swoops in and they want to know, what are you doing here? And that's their human nature coming in. And I think it's a reminder to us that we need to be praying for those who are serving God's kingdom around the world. We need to be praying for preachers here in our own communities, for churches in Atlanta area, Georgia, United States, around the world who are being faithful to God's word because it is difficult. We need to be praying for one another. Because we're being bombarded on every side by everything. And it's so easy for us to, to fall into our own old man, our old nature, and go to those things that we know so well. We need to be praying for one another. When God says to Jonah in chapter 4, verse 4, Do you do well to be angry? We need to remember that Jonah is angry with God. 
and he has no right to be angry with God. You know, he could have lifted up a very different prayer. He could have lifted up a prayer that says, uh, I don't understand. I don't think I'm with you. I, I, I need you to help me understand. I need you to help me because I, I'm lacking in faith. I'm lacking in understanding. That would have been a right response. But there is no point in expressing your anger with God and then just walking away, which is what Jonah does here. God has been kind to Jonah's enemies, which is so frustrating to him. But they are not just Jonah's enemies. They are God's enemies as well. And I think we forget that. They're God's enemies as well. So we have to conclude that Jonah is sinfully angry with the Lord. He has no right to be sinfully angry. If the, if the mercy of God is making him mad, then it just shows us the need that Jonah has for more of God's mercy on himself working in him. It would be good if he were to confess that. Lord, I'm lacking in mercy. I still have this nationalistic view in my head and I need you to help me understand the truth here. I need you to help me understand why you're doing what you're doing. And then seeking help from God. But look at chapter 4, verse 5. He's not listening. He walks away. God asks him a question. God is patient with him. God is gracious to him. God is trying to bring him to a healthy state. And Jonah is walking away. How many of us have tried counseling a friend and and we're patient with them, and we keep trying to show them their, the error of their ways, and, and, and we tell them that it's not our, our hope is for their interest. We're, we're thinking for their interest. It's not a selfish reason that we're doing it. We want restoration, and they just walk away. They refuse to listen to us. That's what Jonah is doing here with the Lord. Which brings us to the next point, God's poignant plant. Plant with a T, not plan. Verses 5 to 9. Many assume that Jonah's problem here is that he dislikes the Ninevites. That that's, that's it. That's the main thing. But it seems that the plant lesson, which I think is the climax of this book... Uh, brings that theory undone. And I know that um, in the book of Acts, you have uh, uh, a Peter who's in Joppa, who gets the vision of the sheet coming down with the animals, and then God says, do not call unclean what I have made clean. And the point being, I'm sending you to the Gentiles. I understand there's a, there's a nationalistic view here, that that's, a, that's very much a reality, right? So then, Peter ends up going to Cornelius, and it's the first Gentile that's converted um, in that book of Acts. I know that that's a, that's a real uh, part of this aspect, but I think there is something more profound than just that taking place. The, the plant lesson is revealing something else. Look at what happens, chapter 4, verse 5. He goes out to watch the city, and he's miserable. He's hoping that something will happen to the city. He's thinking, because God said, you know, 40 days and I'm going to bring judgment on you. 
and he's been told by God that nothing will happen, and yet he still sits there waiting for the destruction of Nineveh. He wants it so badly, and he's just getting more and more angry the more and more time goes by that nothing happens. It reminds me when I was little, and I was upset with my family, so I decided to run away. And I went, and I hid in a tree, and I, I thought, they're going to get all upset that I'm gone and come looking for me. And it was cold, and I was miserable, and I waited, and I waited. And finally, I went back in the house, and no one even knew that I was gone. It was a lose-lose situation. Talk about suffering. It's a lose-lose situation for Jonah. Here is Jonah, and he's in this angry mood. And God uses an object lesson to get through to him because he's not listening to the voice of God. And the plant, I think, is the key to the book. And so what is the situation? What's happening with this plant? Jonah is watching over the city. It's hot. He makes a little booth or a shelter. The shelter's no good. And so God raises up this plant that gives him shade. Verse 6, suddenly Jonah is very happy. Then verse 7, God destroys the vine. And he sends a great heat on Jonah. Verse 8. And Jonah is angry. And Jonah is unhappy. When there is shade, he's happy. When there is no shade, he's unhappy. It's such a simple thing for God to do, to grow this plant up and then to send the worm and and destroy it. And yet there's such a profound lesson for Jonah in this. What would you say if you had to explain the plant to someone over lunch today? What would you tell your children? How would you explain this plant to them? Well, there's a few things you could say. You could say this is an ownership lesson. God owns everything. So God is saying through the plant up and down, listen, Jonah, your vine is gone, but do you think I want an entire city to be gone? It could be a values lesson. It could be that God is saying, you, Jonah, are upset at a plant. Should I not be upset with a people and a whole life of a city, even their cattle. It could be a danger lesson. You know, Jonah, there was a, some heat that came your way. And it distressed you. Would it distress you to know that the Ninevites were distressed at the thought of great and eternal heat? Or it could be a protection lesson. It could be that God is saying, Jonah, you liked being protected. Why don't you like the idea of the Ninevites being protected? You liked it when you were safe. Why don't you like if they are safe? You liked it when you were secure. Why, don't you, why won't you like it for them to be secure? But I wonder if the real searching question in the plant is the question of comfort. Jonah liked being comfortable. And he was angry when his comfort was taken away. Perhaps that is the most revealing thing here. And I wonder if you identify with this. Chapter 2, verse 6, Jonah says, Thank you, God, for saving me. Chapter 4, verse 6, I thank you, God, for sheltering me. Chapter 4, verse 1, I'm angry that you have looked after these terrible people. Chapter 4, verse 9, I'm angry that you have taken my shade away. 
I'm thankful, God, when you do things for me. I'm angry when you do things for other people or you do not do things for me. This is why the book of Jonah is so searching. This is why the plant is so poignant. Because it's more than just being anti-enemies. Right? It's the point we made earlier. We don't necessarily look on people groups and just think, wipe them out, Lord. This book is is more than just being anti-enemies. Because if that's the only point, and that's not a thing for us, then then we can kind of write the book of Jonah off. We can just sort of dismiss it. And we write it off as, well, Jonah was just weird, and he had all these weird nationalistic views, and I don't really get it. That was just for him in his time period, I suppose. But I think the issue is the issue of anti-cost. Jonah is basically saying... Do not ask me to pay a price. Do not ask me to make a sacrifice. Because I am pro-comfort. I am anti-cost and I am pro-comfort. That's what the plant lesson reveals. Don't take my shade away, says Jonah. Do take my enemies away. And if you cooperate, I'll be happy. And if it doesn't work out, then I will be angry. So make me comfortable. And I think we need to look in the mirror and see that Jonah is frighteningly close to us. We also need to look through the window of the whole book to see there's only one person in the universe. There's only one, the one who is greater than Jonah, the one who is actually concerned for the comfort of others at the cost of himself, which leads us to the third point, God's costly compassion. This book points us to Christ. We've been looking at it week after week after week as we've done this series. Why is it that Jesus is greater than Jonah. What makes him greater than Jonah? He comes into the world and he says, uh, I am greater than Jonah. Well, he's a greater person. The Son of God is a greater person than Jonah. That's not a stretch of the imagination. He has a greater message. His message is, I bring you forgiveness, something that Jonah really couldn't say. And Jesus could explain this and say, I bring you forgiveness because of the the finished work on the cross. Where I will pay for your sins and where you will no longer bear the guilt that comes with that. Weighing down by that. He also has a greater rising. Three days and Jonah's released from the belly of the whale. Christ, three days And he's released from the belly of the tomb, from death itself. But I think the greatest thing that makes Jesus better than Jonah is that he has infinitely greater compassion. He's prepared to pay the cost for the comfort of another, while Jonah wants the comfort at the cost of another. So when God says in chapter 4, verse 10, Jonah, don't you care about the city? I know you care about the vine. Don't you care about the city? He goes on in verse 11 to say, should I not be concerned for the city? 
And the word for concern in the original language is the word overflow. So God says, should I not overflow for the city? I suppose the word for overflow could be translated weep. But we might also say that the word overflow should mean, should I not bleed for the city? And we know that as Jesus entered Jerusalem, he did weep. And he did overflow for the city. He has more compassion for people than I have. And then he overflowed with with blood for the people, for the city. He will pay far more than I will pay. So the heart of Jonah, which is very much like yours and mine, extends to Jonah. And the heart of Christ, it extends to needy people. It could be lost people. It it certainly is extended to lost people. But he's even concerned for the wayward servants, for the Jonas. So here's a book that looks across the world and sees a lot of lost people who do not deserve to be saved. And the heart of God says, I want them to be saved. And I will make it possible for them to be saved. And he looks across the church and he sees a lot of found people who are rightly rejoicing in being found. But so much of that found is lost or blocked. And he slowly, slowly, patiently works on us to make us his useful people. There's only one person in the universe, only one who's not curved in on himself. Where would we be without that person? Where would we be without the Lord Jesus Christ? The the one person who has the ability and the willingness to look out from his own comfort and pay the complete cost. We need to hear this message of Jonah because there are those of us who are in the church who are not yet in Christ. There are some of us in here this morning who may be lost still, and we need to come to Christ and ask for forgiveness and ask for new life and turn in repentance like the Ninevites, but put our trust in Christ and receive that salvation. Or as I assume most of us are, we are found people. And we need to be saying, God, would you help me to be increasingly available and increasingly compassionate. Because the tendency of my heart is to curve in on itself. And unless the Lord's heart begins to work in my heart, then it will only get worse. There was once two really well-known pastors who were interviewed, and, and they were both asked, what do you do with your fame? What do you do when people come up and praise you? And one said, well, I give all glory to God. Which is probably a standard answer. But the other one was a bit more open. And um, he said, you know, I'm always amazed that God would use me. I've either just had a fight with my wife or, or I've been looking at a girl in the street for too long. And someone will come up to me and say, you know, God used you. And I think... How did you do that? 
But that's the reality, isn't it? It's to see ourselves as we really are. And then to go to the one who helps us, who can help us. Not just who forgives us, but who can transform us. And say, would you please help me against the hardening of my heart? Because you see, the world and the flesh and the devil are having a much greater impact on me than they should. As we come to the end of this book... If you read this book of Jonah and you elevate yourself or you look down on Jonah as some sort of dirt bag, he lacked compassion. I have compassion. Then I think we've missed the point. The question is the price of compassion. Look at the steps that you and I will take for comfort. Look at, think about the genius in which we put into the way we arrange our, our holidays, our vacations. And yet we don't use the same genius when it comes to making mission sacrifices. Think about the way we, we maximize our, our, our popularity to make sure that that remains intact, and yet we minimize risk. Think of the way that we profit much and fund less. Think of the way that we work to indulge ourselves, but there is little hurt in the process in the Christian life. It is a condition of the human heart. And there's one person who can help us. One person who paid the price of compassion with great cost, and it's Jesus. The one who, though rich for your sakes, became poor so that you, through his poverty, may become deeply, eternally, wonderfully rich. We need to ask him to help us against this Jonah syndrome, which is in the human heart. The God who has turned his wrath on himself and suffered and turned his love on the unworthy. He's the one who can help us to have less of that heart of self and more of that heart of compassion and and is willing to pay the price. The one who came as the Savior is able to help all of us. And if this book leads us to seek after Him, to, to thank Him, to confess Him, and to ask for that transforming power, then praise God. This is the good news. That we can be like Jonah. We have that waywardness in us. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love, and yet He pursues us, and He pursues us, and He pursues us, and He gently comes back, and He gently comes back, and He reminds us. And sometimes He makes us uncomfortable in the process. But that's a good and gracious thing that He's doing. Bringing us back to Himself. Bringing us back to Himself. Reminding us of what the Gospel says. Reminding us of the truth. So that we don't keep going back to our inward-focused hearts. Our hearts are fickle. They mislead us. Christ is good. Christ is good. His news is good. Oh, that we would go back to Him. Let's pray. Father, it's so easy for us 
to get caught up in the things of this world, to be distracted, to get caught up in comfort to the point where comfort becomes our God. And we see you as the one who either gives it or takes it, and we hold you accountable for these things when you've already brought us the greatest comfort. And I think it's a reflection of how we view Christ when we only seek the immediate comfort and we don't recognize the eternal comfort. And not just the eternal comfort, but even the immediate comfort in which Christ brings us in giving us the knowledge of salvation and giving us the knowledge of the good news of what Christ has done for us. So may we not be like Jonah. And when we do, may we be reminded of your grace, of your mercy, that you're not a God who brings distress for no reason, but you bring discipline because you are discipling us for those who have put our trust in you. Oh, that we would trust you all the more. Oh, that we would trust you all the more. For you are good. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.